Hello, and welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast. I'm your host, Will Chernoff, and this episode is sponsored by Pearson Instruments. That's Brad Pearson, a local luthier and guitar tech here in Vancouver. He's in Marple, that's in South Vancouver. He's off of Oak Street, and I've been going there, taking all my string instruments to him to get them feeling and sounding beautiful. He's a great bass player himself, so naturally, he really did some great things for my upright bass. It's never felt this great to play before. That said, I was a bit of an absentee owner of it for several years, but Brad doesn't judge. He doesn't care. He just takes the instrument, does his thing, hands it back to you, and you end up wanting to play it more because it feels so good. And then I got him to do the same with my acoustic guitar and my electric bass, and I'll keep doing it with all the instruments I have. So I recommend if you've got string instruments in your life, take them to Brad, get him to help you get them feeling and sounding great. So go to pearsoninstruments.ca to learn more about Brad and his services. That's pearsoninstruments.ca to book some time with Brad to get your instruments in shape. Thanks for sponsoring the show, Brad Pearson. This episode is also sponsored by 12th Street Sound, the recording studio in my neighborhood here in New West. Anthony Centerini's got an offer for you and it expires at the end of this month. So you better act now if you want to get 20% off your next recording project here locally, producing, recording, or mixing with Anthony or all of the above. If you have a specific project in mind, talk to him and he'll be more than happy to give you a discount because he wants to help the listeners of this show. He's a big supporter of the podcast. You can go to 12thstreet.ca slash RCP to access this deal. You get in touch with Anthony through there and he'll know that we sent you and you'll get a discount of up to 20% off your project. It's ideal for bands on a budget or people who want to try something different than the other things they've tried around the region. So go to 12thstreet.ca slash RCP, 12thst.ca slash RCP, get in touch with Anthony and get a discount on your next recording project. There's a song, um, I think it's on the record, my song. It goes, I heard that that was written on a flight on the way to a recording session. As you know, I am a man of words as well as speaking and playing an instrument, but there's one area where I'm maybe not as strong, that's visual art. However, the project that I'm showcasing with you on the show this week does have a lot to do with visual art, the Group of Seven Canadian Art History. We've got an artist who's not only extremely talented musically, but he's knowledgeable about that too. That's up next. You're listening to the interview podcast about jazz and creative music in Canada. Our guest today is a saxophonist, clarinetist, and composer who released an album called Rich in Symbols 2 on September 9th, 2022. With the album, he follows up Rich in Symbols, which received a Juno nomination for Jazz Album of the Year solo in 2018. Both of these albums speak to his interest in visual art, with Rich in Symbols 2 being dedicated to Canada's group of seven painters, plus the two often associated painters, Tom Thompson and Emily Carr. His collaborators on this album are Jacob Sachs on keyboards, Joe Grass on guitar, pedal steel, and banjo, Zach Lober on bass, and Eric Dube on drums. You can get the album available now on Bandcamp. He is based in Brooklyn, but he is from Montreal. So please welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast, Chet Doxis. Right on, Well, Nice intro. Sounds perfect. Got it all. <laughs> yeah, it is a unique project of all the ones I see this year. I'll, I'll tell you that much for sure. There's definitely lots to talk about. 
there's one funny thing I wanted to jump to first, which is in the press materials, it says that you say, quote, when I look at paintings, I hear music. So I thought that was fun, but I actually wanted to flip that around a little bit too. So what do you think about this? Like when you hear music of any kind or maybe of various kinds, like do you see art or do you see visualizations? Like does it work the other way? Yeah, a little a little bit. Um, I have like very remedial synesthesia. So um, uh, <clears throat> there's a couple of chords that have colors and uh, so like a purple is a D minor six, for, for instance. Uh, and actually, I was at, at a museum the other day with my daughter. It's uh, one of the interactive uh, museums called the Color Factory, and it's in Manhattan. And, um, and there was a, a class of Manhattan School of Music students that were beginning their orientation week. And I guess this was like a fun get to know each other activity and someone beside me was looking at purple and then he said oh that's d minor six or no he said d minor seven and i turned i was like no way and, and so we kind of <clears throat> met met uh that way through that one chord so uh so as far as like that literal synesthesia thing that you maybe heard about um there's a little touch of that but visually yes um there um about in the last, about three years ago this uh this older dancing man appeared in my mind when I started, when, when I've been playing sometimes. And I've noticed that it's when I've been playing a lot for about three months, very steadily. So that would maybe be playing with other musicians about five times a week. Um, so if I'm playing that often, um, then there's this kind of like old soft shoe guy that appears. And sometimes I just, uh, follow what he's doing i'll let that help my like dictate my phrasing huh so this synesthesia thing it's when you you associate colors with uh particular frequencies or how how exactly does that does that work yeah i mean my i'm sure there's a whole different um there, there are a bunch of different ways of experiencing it but mine specifically is with certain uh uh, chords, I guess, would be the best way to put it. So multiple notes played at once give me a, a color like a placard, um, and then I and then I also had uh, that with with people too. Um, so people would be a certain color cue card um, in my head. It, it used to be stronger about five years ago, but if we're talking about it now, and I'm thinking about you, it's about this color. Um, this this one right here actually it's pretty similar to your um your square it's it's a little lighter though it's an orange okay yeah 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 so i don't know I, you know i i I, sh I should probably just take some time and research it a little bit to find out what's going on um online and i've done that a little bit um but the colors uh with people is one that um i found but but then it quickly gets into like auras and um other ways of, of maybe <clears throat> reading people more on a spiritual level. And, and that's just, uh, I, I'm not necessarily picking up those, those kinds of vibes. It's more just like a, 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 like a cue card of a solid color that appears. Interesting. 
yeah, I've never experienced anything like that myself. So it's it's cool to hear it from you. <laughs> I, 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 and it just kind of came out of nowhere, really. Um, so, um, yeah, I just, I just, I just went went with it. And then, as far as hearing the the um, the music with paintings, that happened maybe about ten years ago, out of the out of the blue. Yeah, and there's this image, this literal photos uh, in the album of you writing music notation on a pad of paper in an art gallery, like kind of hunched over and like writing it on your lap or something. I thought this was such a unique image. Like I never thought of, uh, certainly not like another jazz musician that I was aware of doing this, but it seems to have been a big thing for you. Cause like you did it not only for the first Rich and Symbols, but now also this, right? Yeah, you know, well, like it, it, it actually came at a time when I was struggling uh, with what I can best describe it uh, as writer's block in, in a way. Um, it was pretty shortly after I'm, or just right before I moved to New York from Montreal. And um, I was, uh, it was like a combination of um, not knowing what direction I would like to go, which in hindsight, I think that's the wrong question to be asking, but I learned the, I learned the hard way. Okay. Um, and I, was, I just felt kind of stuck wherever I turned on developing or knowing ways to, you know, develop what I was hearing a little bit more. So I started to think about alternative sources of um, inspiration and um, looking into different texts. So I had written some uh, music based on short stories before. Um, so it wasn't necessarily out of the, um, out of the ordinary for me to, 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 to reference you know, programmatic influences for music. Um, but the, uh, the visual response or the musical response to the visuals came out of the blue. And I remember exactly where too. it was. Um, um, I also spent seven years playing in the Sam Roberts band. And uh, yeah. so we toured a lot and uh, I saw occasionally on day offs it, or if we had time, we would go to museums. Um, and in this one instance, we went to this, uh, I mean, it's it, it really bowled me over. There, in in all cities, uh, Buffalo, New York, there's an unbelievable um, modern art museum called the Albright the Albright Knox Museum, and it's truly a world class um, museum right in the middle of Buffalo, and it's a beautiful facility, and it houses some of the, I don't, I I think some some like an incredible collection of. Uh, of, of modern European and American art uh, in Buffalo, of all places. So I remember walking around one day, and right when we were walking off the tour bus um, to go um, to, on our field trip to the museum, I said, you know, I'm going to grab something kind of said, bring your, bring your manuscript book. And I had a little bit, a uh, little moleskin, manuscript moleskin. I took it, and sure enough, I started walking through, and it was every, every work I wrote, I walked by. Um, a, a different idea came to the point where it was too many things. It was overwhelming. And oh. that was my first experience with that. So then I started going to museums um, when I got home more regularly and visiting um, all the museums in New York and, and trying to control myself a little bit. So the first series that didn't really see the light of day was um, just an etude really on these. Uh, there was a, a temporary show at the... Guggen? No, no, no. It was at the. It was at the MoMA, 
and it was um, about uh, opera posters from the 1920s and 30s in Paris. And there was a couple of rooms, and, and I just let myself just stick to one area and one era. And that, that was cool. That was a good learning experience, and there seemed to be more of a continuity in the material. And that's where I started branching out for Rich and Symbols 1, which focused on um, New York art between the mid-70s and mid-80s. Yeah. And then we're a Vancouver show over here, and to dip our toes into Rich and Symbols 2, you have track four, which, and every track is associated with a painting by the group of seven plus, so to speak, uh, all inspired by this Canadian art. And track four is inspired by uh, an Emily Carr painting. So did you do this in the Vancouver Art Gallery too? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the unfortunate thing about it. If I, if I would put it that way, it's the wrong word, but I, I can't do it unless I'm there. Um, it doesn't work if I'm looking at it on a computer screen or a photograph of a piece. I, I have to be in the same room. So that is painted, uh, or sorry, that was written at the Van Vancouver Art, Art Gallery. And I think that's part of the permanent collection. It's, it's actually pretty big. I would say the piece is maybe four by six, four wide by six tall. And what's interesting about that work, um, if, you're, if you've seen it or if you're looking at it, um, is it's it's quite um, quite severely cropped on purpose, and it's an interesting part of a tree to to paint. Uh, so, a perspective, you know, if we start talking about the specifics of it, perspective and, and vantage point um, was something that I uh, I paid attention to too when when approaching beginning to write a piece for the paintings. Yeah, that's Tree Trunk by Emily Carr. And on the webpage for this podcast, I'll try and fly all those in, um, hopefully in their original crops and such, and, and so that none of it will be left out. But I'll try and show them there, at least so that people can see what I saw when I first heard the album. I was uh, I was looking at each one for sure to, to get an idea of how it came together, right? Cool. Yeah. Um, that was probably my favorite track, actually. It's it's one of the ones that stuck with me the most because it's pretty delightful how like the, the clarinet melody moves it along and, and it's a very energetic uh, track on the album. And, and then when you get to the end, it's like it almost sounds like the tree is being chipped or cut down. <laughs> yeah, well, you got it. It's good. That was the arrival of uh, industrialization around the tree. It's not that literal, but I did. I was thinking about that when I was writing it, and then that melody was inspired by the the the, the rings that you would see if you in the trunk. Because it's just like a very insistent, like eighth notes melody on the clarinet, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a cyclical riff that. I, I can't remember what it's notated in. It might be in nine or or something. It's an it's a it's an odd bar length, but um, yeah, and and those those kind of ripples, uh, like like that like that you would see in the in the trunk of a tree if you were to cut it yeah. across. Yeah, and then the idea of the tree feeling like it's being chipped is like that same melody is there at the end too, but there's like all this other stuff going on around it. Yeah, yeah. 
who else has done a project like this? Like anybody? Like you've done two now. You've done you've done two different jazz albums that allude to art scenes and and tie in like that. Like has has somebody else done this before, or is this like a very kind of idiosyncratic path that you've gone down with it? Yeah, I I don't know. Well, I think it's it's really one of those um, things that was uh, that was used as a as a learning process for myself. Um, so I didn't do much research. That being said, I noticed, um, and, and you mentioned your association with Dave Douglas, and um, I've also uh, been lucky enough to work with Dave as well over the last 10, 10 years. And uh, I think, I, I just saw that he, um, I'm not sure if he recorded it, but he performed a music, uh, a, an original composition for a, for a work of art in Belgium. Um, and I saw some pictures that looked really beautifully presented. So yeah. I haven't talked to him about, about that. Um, I, I should next time I see him. Yeah, I should check in on that too. When I think of you with Dave, uh, I think of this track called The New National Anthem, which I thought was a really cool track. Yeah, that's a Carla Bley piece. And mm-hmm. that was actually, um, so that record that we recorded, the, the uh, named after that tune, um, that was a lot of Carla's music and then music that was inspired by Carla. And then shortly after that, she, not, she wrote a piece for us, a multi-movement um, suite, and she joined the band. And so we got to tour and perform, and uh, those were some very, very memorable evenings with her on the bandstand. Um, Wait. Wow. So wait, if if she joined the band, does that mean that the band was Dave and you on the front and then Carla and Steve Swallow and your brother Jim in the rhythm section? Is that what the band was? Yeah, it was called wow. Riverside plus Carla Blay. That's awesome. We, yeah, it was so fun. We toured in Europe and then we did two shows in Canada, one in Montreal and one um, in Quebec City. And we were going to um, keep going, and, but then Carla uh, became ill and is is no longer performing right now so yeah it was amazing i mean not to get too uh tangential about it but she's one of the few people i've played with and it's just something i've 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 noticed about some some people that she would put uh in a very pared down way like maybe a great only a great composer can do she would put something in a place that you've never heard it before in uh, in space and time like in while she's improvising um and you've never quite heard anything like it it's highly improvised um and there was just moments where i she found cracks that i didn't know existed and she 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 does that. So whatever that thing is, um, sometimes I feel that way when I I get to um, play with Thomas Morgan in a, in a trio, and Thomas puts things in places where I, I don't ex- expect them, and they're always it's always very surprising and highly improvised. Huh, that's a cool way to put it. The the thing about the cracks and finding new cracks and stuff. Do you feel like there were don't have to zero in on on a super specific moment but like on this album you know if we think about your ensemble that that you made this album with 
Um, are there certain spots around the album where that sort of thing happened for you guys in particular in a way that that I would be able to access now that you kind of described it that way with reference to Carla Blay? Like where on where on this project did you kind of approach that that sort of feeling? Because it's an interesting approach. Yeah, I think those feelings happen when, um, and you know, I, I'm sure you've had the experience where um, you're not thinking uh, and you're just responding. And that's when, if everything lines up just right, that certain magic moments can happen. And um, there's, uh, I, and I rarely would ever say this about my, my own playing, but it's more <laughs> about the ensemble that there are two parts where there's a saxophone solo, but the, the place where, the, where we all get to together musically is one of those, um, on two of the tracks, there's one called North Shore Lake Superior, and um, on a piece called The Jack Pine, which is named after Tom Thompson's, basically it's like Canada's uh, sunflower, it's like a Van Gogh. It's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah. like, I think one of our most famous impressionist works. And, um, and where we go, and it's not about the saxophone solo as much as where we get to as an ensemble in that moment of the song, I, I listen to you and I think, wow, that's, that's really everybody um, responding to what the music needs right now. And it happens a, a whole bunch, and maybe I'm noticing it because I'm hearing myself in that moment, so I have a little bit more reference. So I'd be curious to ask the other musicians if they have any spots in the album where they've, they've, they feel that way too. But those ones stuck out to me and yeah, and some kind of magic moments that quite often, quite, quite honestly don't happen in the studio, uh, as often as they do live. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense because yeah, if you, if you create that sort of environment in the studio that allows for that, then you've done magic, right? Like that's a pretty serious recording session. If you get that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huh. The Jack Pine was one of the tracks that I actually wanted to go deeper on too, because I thought I thought that also had a bunch of cool things about it. Um, what is happening in the beginning there? It's like there's sax, but it's like high passed or something. Like there's a certain kind of it's like it's coming through a small speaker or something. Like what what is that? Yeah, so I wanted to um uh try to set a bit of a scene of of, uh, of uh, what it what might have been like after dinner um, in the parlor and playing music all together. So I wanted to create kind of a, a warm atmosphere and almost off stage, but also in a living room. Um, so in the high pass, <clears throat> um, you're right about that is, uh, I think it's actually a spectral delay I ended up using, but not for the right reason. I just like the sound of it better. and. Um, and it was supposed to have that kind of uh, coming out of a of a of an old stereo, and then of course we kind of it, it that effect tapers off, and we kind of all uh, the lens the lens catches focus, and and then we're we're off into the into present time. So it was kind of a a little bit of time traveling. Man, the switch to saxophone for that track just feels great. Like it just opens it up. Uh, after two tracks of clarinet uh, and the clarinet is an interesting sound on the album too and then you switch the saxophone there and it just kind of blows open the album and and i thought oh, it sounded good. really nice i'm glad it had that effect because that's what i was hoping that there would be some kind of uh 
opening, like you said, and, and, and on that uh, track specifically, I'm, I'm playing an instrument called the C melody saxophone, which oh. um, was a, a more common in the 1920s. So it's a, it's a bit of a period piece for a second. <laughs> huh. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know about the C melody. That's a that's a cool touch. You said uh, again in like the press uh, materials, you said that the Jack Pine painting, which is like this iconic Canadian painting, you said something like that it feels improvised when you look at it. Like, is that is that right? Like, what what can you say about that? Well, I think I'm starting to connect the dots on what I mean by that in certain with certain music. So maybe I could explain it that way. Um, yeah. Like I feel uh, like box music feels improvised. I think huh. when you have um, someone that's that um, fast at writing and that good, um, I think it ends up when you play it and when you next time you play Bach, think about it um, as if he if you think about it as if you were playing someone's improvisation, and I think it makes sense um, because things technically with Bach aren't in the places that you expect them to be. There's a lot of surprises. There's a lot of humor. He puts these funny little tags. Um, there's a lot of dancing to it. I feel like he follows um, his inner rhythm or, the, or his body or the way he, a dancer would move because a lot of them are dances, of course. Um, and I think he has that amazingly holistic yet improvised approach to writing music. Um, I'd say like the late the last four string quartets that Beethoven composed feel almost almost like you had four great improvisers improvising together. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So <clears throat> for certain um, for certain paintings uh, and the Jack Pine being one of them, I, I have a feeling it was done quickly but very a accurately. Um, so quickly, not not necessarily being hasty, just quick and really, really good, um, which is probably <laughs> the best, <laughs> best combination. I think a Keith Jarrett, you know, like fast yeah. but good. Um, I think I, I heard a story the other day about a piece called, um, I think it was Questar. Do you, are you familiar with the European quartet that he had with Jan Garbarek? A little bit. Yeah, I've heard some of those records. Yeah. Yeah. There's a song, um, I think it's on the record, my song. It goes, and it's, it's a melody that's beautifully lyrical and changes um, key centers a whole bunch and almost like it reminds me of, of an Ornette Coleman modulation of the melody. Anyways, um, I heard that that was written uh, on a flight um, huh. on the way to a recording session. Wow. And I don't know. I feel like I, I, could, I, I, I didn't know that until pretty recently, and I feel like I can hear that. Like some of those, you know, when you're writing and some of those songs come to you as gifts and they write themselves. Maybe I'm yeah. sure you've had that experience. Yeah, I, I, I'd say that's like improvising, you know? That's what it feels like to improvise a song. Yeah, it's like it was done intuitively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly, intuitively. I guess that's a that's another nice way to look at it. I'll think about that because, yeah, may, maybe that's what makes improvising feel fresh is a, uh, a healthy dose of intuition. Huh. Yeah, and you're saying that you're learning to hear 
and notice uh, when something has that quality when you listen to a composition, but also when you look at a painting, you're also looking to see if it was done intuitively. Yeah, and I think that's why um, why primitivism, whether it be in music or the visual arts, is um, can be alluring. Um, we see something like a Miro painting where it almost looks like a cave painting. Um, cave paintings, I can't imagine, were probably done pretty quickly. Pretty fast, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's something about folk art in the same way where it's not pined over it. It's not um, informed by education and, or formal technique training. Of course, there's a lot of technique. And that's how the whole art form developed. But I feel like you can you can recognize that as being improvised and then that's just one of the uh one of the characteristics that i think can um help uh, identify something or make something feel improvised I, I i like painters that are and musicians for that matter that's that have a ancient quality to their to their work or, or to their sound nice wow yeah, that's such Hayden. great stuff you're like the best person. Yeah, there's a good one. Um, you're like the best person to talk about this very thing because you have such a passion for it and like two different artistic disciplines and like you're always trying to learn about this thing. So it's so cool to hear you talk about that. Well, you know, if uh, it's a it's a passion of mine to study and I love seeing it wherever I can and I, I love watching films. Um, and so I, I think a lot of the great actors and I've listened to a lot of... Um, interviews with them and talking about um, basically re acting by listening and, sound, and that's very musical and I'm trying to think of someone that I just I just saw a film that I, I was really knocked out by uh, I'll, I'll think about it in a, in a second I watched a whole bunch of things lately so it'll come to me it was like a, a, a really amazing performance and and I, I thought like oh that's it like that reminds me of playing with Carla when I saw someone do that, you know, and I'll, it would be a better story if I could remember what I'm talking about. So <laughs> <back to me soon. laughs> but you, you can see it, you can see it like in, um, yeah, I, I was just listening to an actor, a younger actor, Andrew Garfield. He was on Mark Maron's podcast and he was talking about this one scene from deer hunter and when Robert De Niro, um, in this, the scene early in the movie and he thinks, you know, that's, some of the best acting he's ever seen. So I went and I watched that scene and I said, yeah, I know exactly what you mean to be able to access or not even to access, just to react to that. And you, to use your words in, in, intuitively, I think is, is the key. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be thinking about that for sure. I have one kind of uh, sidebar question to throw at you here to wrap things up, which you can uh, accept or decline. Uh, but I think it would be fun to, to kind of riff off an answer here if, if if you feel so inspired, which is, let's say, um, so what would the right year be? Let's say in 2026, 2025 or 2026, um, somebody awards you, some body or organization awards you quite a large grant um, and says that you, Chet, have to go now and make Rich and Symbols 3, but you have to do it about a different art scene which art scenes 
or which periods would you be drawn to do you think would you consider doing another one of these about if the opportunity just landed at your feet what do you think you would do uh that's I, I, it's hard to answer exactly what I would do, but referencing something that I just said, um, I, I would be interested in, in um, working with living artists and specifically working with living artists that are in touch with um, the history of their own art, but also creating art right now and, and to me the, the 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 quickest answer would be um working with indigenous artists from canada educating myself on what it means to uh have a deep connection with history when you create but then also improvise um and i think that i don't i'm not sure if anything would come of it for for me but i would just as a fan be um very interested to to hear working artists talk talk about or answer answer my questions <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that that sounds fascinating to me so i hope that that comes true i hope that that becomes a prophecy of sorts at some point that would be very interesting but you know <laughs> yeah man i mean and the west coast is <clears throat> just so um abundant with um with 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 young artists or working artists um and also honoring the past and the and, and their culture so yeah yeah you're, you're lucky out there we sure are and uh i know that i'll be looking for you next time uh i somehow just completely whiffed and missed you last year at the jazz fest so uh for the, for the next time we'll be making sure that i'll be paying attention yeah and i hope i get to hear you play well i uh I listen to your music too, and and it, I and I was looking at the site, and it looks like you're really interested in representing all different parts of the music and talking to people. So I think it's it's great what you're doing. Do you, are you in a band right now? Like, what's what's your main? Yeah. yeah so right what's, now, what's uh, you know, I'm making my own jazz music on the side of the other stuff. Uh, first album was in 2020. It was like a trumpet and piano quartet. Uh, all original, all instrumental, and second album's coming out uh, end of October. Uh, it's a guitar trio, so I'm I'm just booking some shows and doing some setting up some press and stuff for the guitar trio. Uh, for who, who, who's who's in the first band and who's in the second band? Uh, they're all like collaborators of mine who I know from like since I was a teenager here. Uh, like in the original band, it was uh, Thad Bailey Mai on trumpet. Uh, Johnny Tobin on piano and Carson Toro on drums, all of them from the Kaplan University community with me. Uh, and then Carson's back on drums and it's another guy, Francis Henson on guitar from the same sort of circle. Great, man. That's, that's great that you're working with your peers too. Um, that's, that's a, a cool thing to, to, to be doing, I think. And it's important for the scene too. And I did notice that you just talked to Bill Kuhn. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Bill's. I don't know him personally, but we spoke on the phone uh, a few years ago. I, I put up something on Facebook and, and said if anybody uh, studied with Jim Hall and would care to uh, tell me about it, I'd be very grateful. So Bill was nice enough to uh, spend an hour on the phone with me and just as I fired questions at him because I'm a big 
fan of gyms and and there's another one i would put on the list of someone who uh, uh such a such a such a schooled or, or de- dedicated student of the music but an incredibly intuitive player and equally i think dedicated to to improvising oh yeah yeah bill is one of the nicest musicians i've ever met full stop yeah for sure <laughs> absolutely but you know <clears throat> i don't want to keep you for too long but one thing that i that i would say is I've noticed as I've gotten older um, that uh, a lot of my favorite players um, have very sound and fundamentals in music, and it's something that they've consider, uh, continued to develop. So um, I'm thinking specifically of a Warren Marsh masterclass that he gave in Norway, I think in the Tron, in Tron time. And he's sitting with some students, and, and they're they're young, and he's asking them to do things, and some of them are, you know, uh, they, they're not meant to nail it, so he's asking them to do certain things, like sing a harmonic minor and scale in thirds, now in fourths. And he does a couple of things, and he's just singing, and he's tapping rhythms. And then he's not even playing his horn yet, but he, he you do get a good, uh, you do get a, an amazing glimpse of how, um, how developed his skills as a musician and his musicianship, his ear training, his rhythm, and of course, the saxophone. <clears throat> and I think that's something that um, uh, I didn't pay as much attention to when I was in my 20s, was um, practicing ear training, and pr- practicing rhythm, and uh, having all of these um, building blocks uh, well you know, taken care of and, and becoming passionate about continuing to develop my ears. Um, and I would say that of the players that we talked about, um, and I, I actually have a list on my, on my phone of the players that, that we were talking about before, people that I feel don't, they get out of the way when they play. And, um, and, uh, I, and all of those players, I think one of the common things is they're very, they're very, uh, complete musicians huh yeah and talking about like jim hall being a really shining example of that right absolutely yeah i, th- I think jim yeah. hall is yeah w- one of uh y- you know you have some amazing guys that, uh, uh, out, out where you i think brad turner is an, an incredible musician that way and, and not that you just have to play several instruments but i think that he understanding the role of an instrument of a different instrument in the ensemble I think it's a really fun way to make you a better musician. Yeah, I don't play too much else. I play a little bit of of guitar and a little little bit of piano, but not not on a frequent uh, amount. So uh, that's that's still to be to be learned for me for sure. Or, or not, you know, like there are a, a, a tons of amazing musicians that um, don't play other instruments and are able to synthesize um, or include rather a lot of that language. Um, in their own playing, like I don't, re- I don't know if Sonny Rollins is, you know, plays three or three instruments equally <laughs> as well as the tenor saxophone, for instance. He he may, I ju- I just don't know. Um, I feel like I would maybe know by now, or we'd all know if, like, oh yeah, by the way, Sonny's like an incredible piano player and sounds just as good on drums. <laughs> um, it wouldn't surprise oh, yeah. me, but I haven't heard that. But <clears throat> um, yeah, I th- I think it's a it's a fun way to to develop and. and pay mind to the other building blocks of your of your voice huh i thought that your sax playing on the last track of the album the front of winter 
was very in kind of the sunny esque style and and sound. Cool. Ah, thanks. I wasn't thinking about him, but uh, I think <clears throat> I think um, another thing as I as I as I as I get older is I find myself uh, go, going back to earlier players um, and and really noticing you know how much is there. I mean, I I I. I I think I could just listen to Lester Young for the rest of my life and be very happy. Like it's such a trove of of everything, of time, feel, note choices, phrasing, of course, sound, intonation, uh, listening to the other musicians, improvising. Like he, I, he's really something special. He and he he was a drummer, which um, okay, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, he was a, that was his first instrument, his drums. And then he famously switched to saxophone because he said, I don't know if this is true, but he, he said that he didn't, he, he was packing up drums while every, the rest of the band were, were meeting girls. So he switched to, switched to saxophone so he, could, so he could socialize a little more. Oh, man. The, the Lester Young with the Count Basie rhythm section, really old performance of Lady Be Good is like, probably my favorite jazz track of all time just like the two chorus solo by lester young like i've listened to that hundreds and hundreds of times oh yeah i'll play it i i me too i'll play it for you next time we, we're together i i like to play that <laughs> one almost every day it's like a warm-up that i do we can um, do I'm like a send... super sax style band where we like all <laughs> scat it together all <laughs> together yeah yeah um i'll send you a a video it's uh, all of his solos on lady be good but put up one, uh, one after another, just the solos. And I think there are about six of them. So you actually get to hear him improvising. And some of the parts are the same. Some of those solos back then were composed, like they would work on their solos and play versions of their solos every night with, with variations. So that's really cool to hear. Um, and I was gonna say one more thing, but I, but I can't remember, but yes, all those things. There's another um, really great, uh, Lester solo, I, I think you'd like on on a on a from the same if it's not the same session, it's the same period with with Count Basie, and it's called Twelfth Street Rag. It's a yeah. up tempo, yeah. It's it's you get to hear Lester play up tempo and improvise, and it's just like what a mind, what a what a beautiful beautiful mind. Yeah, yeah. That uh, the first tune that was like that's tied into like one of the first tunes I ever wrote uh, as a young teenager. And that's also going to lead off my second album, that track of that tune. Like the very first tune I ever wrote was like a three chord, like fusion jam or something. Uh, uh, but the second tune that I ever wrote, um, I basically, I thought that I had written it over the changes of Lady Be Good, referring back to that Lester Young version in the key of G. I actually didn't get the bridge right. I just did like a, a different bridge than the actual Lady Be Good bridge, but the the second tune I ever wrote and the first like actual jazz form tune I ever wrote was like me trying to just write a tune on top of that sound and that feeling. It's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful chord progression. And I listen to a lot of Billie Holiday too now. I mean, learning one of her her solos right now on on Body and Soul. I play along with her. And I'm, those two, Billy Holiday and Prez, I feel like I, I can probably just pack, you know, pack it up and just listen to those two for the rest of my <laughs> life and not be bored. 
So you're playing saxophone like along with Billy singing the melody and all that, like the whole way through the tune. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, really, really. Um, so it's a, it's a ballad, of course. It's body and soul, but I I learned it on purpose at half speed, um, to um, to really hone in on every single color for every note, and it's <clears throat> really uh, astounding how much he puts into every every note, every single note. There's something that's done to it. Um, and then the placement of it and the color of it, it's really, yeah, it's, 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 it's really astounding is the only, only word. And I'm looking forward to, um, continuing to study her. And as I, as I play that, and then I listen to Ben Webster, I hear a lot of, um, vocalizing. So whether or not he's influenced by Billie Holiday or not, but I do hear on the older players that they were literally singing through their horns, like really using a lot of vocalizing there's a ben webster and he goes um he goes uh uh i okay the lyric goes i spend my day in longing like a body and soul yeah yeah so he goes um do 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 and he puts his tongue on the reed almost like he's saying the word longing longing and i don't know if he's thinking about that but there are he pronounces certain lyrics when he's playing Ah, <laughs> I'm stealing that one. <laughs> it's, it's 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 a it's it's a really it adds some amazing color, and if you know the lyric, you can actually decide whether or not you're gonna articulation of the syllables or the even that even the sound of that part of the word. Why not? Huh. You know? And that goes back to you know not thinking and and being intuitive because like you can't possibly think your way through stuff like that in performances or in the studio all the time because you'll never you'll never be able to cover all your tracks like you'll you'll be thinking too much all the time so like the only way you can like articulate on that level like thinking about a a sax player like doing that uh, and it ends up matching like what the lyric is is like if you were not thinking about it because like you had it kind of in you already right Mm -hmm. i mean i i'm not a big sports fan but you're reminding me of um, a, a lot of musicians are, and you're reminding me of some of the things that people, some of the parallels people draw between high-level sports and music. It's like you do so much work, and you train, and you train, and you practice, and practice, and practice, and then when when you know uh, a puck is coming you at, uh, coming at your face at 100 miles an hour, you just react, or you make these beautiful plays. And there's so much creativity when you see it on the ice, and it is improvised. Um, Again, I, 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 I wouldn't be able to talk too much about sports because I, I am not like a sports fan. I, I like them, but I, I think a lot of people could, could draw a lot of really <laughs> um, amazing parallels between that level of reaction and, and improvising. Yeah, I could talk about sports all day for sure. I am one of those fans. Hockey? I, uh, yeah, hockey is my, would be my main for sure. I could, I could hold it down on a fair number of sports, but hockey's the one right that on. I grew up with and I'm the most passionate about. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Oh, that's great. Uh, but I, I tend to like joke back that, oh, there's there's enough sports metaphors already in music. Like, let's cool it with the sports metaphors. And I usually say, let's use cooking metaphors instead. <laughs> I like that, too. I love I, I, I My dad does a lot. My dad's a musician and he, he uses a lot of cooking metaphors and he's Greek and he grew up in the restaurant business and everything. So cooking is um, 
is never far uh, from what anything that we're talking about. And it, it, it really is like that. I mean, if you start talking about color and music, and, and if you start talking about post-production, and if you're thinking making something brighter, making something darker, making the lights, like it's, it, it, you can really, it sounds like you're talking about cooking. So post-production is like seasoning. Yeah, man, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah, oh man, this has been so much fun. There's so much to think about there. Uh, I could just keep going like this for however long. It was funny because you said that you didn't want to keep me. But it's like, this is my show, man. You're not keeping me anywhere. I'm here. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I, I get talking about this and then it makes yeah. me start thinking about new things and I just start thinking out loud. So yeah, you were up for up for the chat. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I always I'll say this here, too, so that it can get out beyond the guest world is especially when I have in persons. Um, I usually I describe it as well. You have the podcast and then you have the second podcast. And what that means is like if somebody actually takes the time to come over here, like usually we don't just cut to a, a tight 30 or 40 minute conversation because they've taken the time, right? So maybe we'll have a longer conversation, a longer episode. But inevitably, it's like a good rule of thumb that as soon as you stop recording, we'll end up chatting and hanging out for like a time of equal length to the time that we spent recording, you know? Of course, and that's like the second course. podcast. And sometimes you wish you could get some of that in the first, in the in the real um, podcast and this you know I'm not doing too many onlines these days it is actually a lot of in-persons in Vancouver but this one I felt like this is one of the only online ones I ever had where we actually accessed the second podcast you know <laughs> so thank right you on. for that <laughs> oh thank you Will you made it really easy and it was really fun to talk to you and I look forward to hanging out in person right on right on